Well, good morning again. Those of you that weren't here earlier when I said that. Um, so, um, this morning we are going to do uh, things a little bit different than what we usually do. Uh, one of the things that we have committed to uh, as elders this year is to not just um, cast vision for you, um, not just cast a preferred reality um, of the things that we believe God's calling us into as a church, but to actually periodically set aside time during our gatherings to actually act together in prayer and actually ask God um, to do His work on His behalf. Um, and so today, um, in our time where we normally have uh, our discussion or sermon, um, we're going to actually spend time praying together. Um, we've committed to do that basically in between each series, so we'll be starting a new series next week on the Beatitudes, um, and so you want to be maybe reading those or be um, studying on those, and we'll be starting that next week, but, um, but we want to spend this time today um, in prayer together, and I know that may be awkward for some of you. Um, if you're new, you may feel like weird doing that, or um, if you're just not used to praying in a group, we want to give you the freedom to, to, uh, to just listen as others pray. Um, or join in. In fact, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things we can learn about God from each other as we hear each other pray the truth of God. And so God is actually speaking to each other and through His Spirit as we pray. Really, praying in community together is not something new. Um, it's not something that we've invented. God's actually in, been calling His people to do this since the very beginning. Really, the first role um, that we see in the story of God um, interacting with humans, um, He gave them this this idea to, to care for the earth. And we see them communicating with God daily and God's walking with them and, and He speaks with them and they're communicating all day long. Where they really get into trouble is where they stop communicating with God. They stop talking to Him and, and expressing and, and having His opinion you know, really rule everything in their life. And so out of that, out of their, their rebellion, even though they rebel, God continues to call His people back to Himself. And as history progresses, we see God call the people of Israel, we, we see him call them to pray. And I want to read a verse in Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah 29 uh, says this, um, says this to his people, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find its welfare. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So God is telling his people here who are in exile, a place that's different from where they used to live, a place where they probably didn't want to be, a place that it's not easy probably to pray for. Um, and he says, when they pray for it, it's not just good for that city, but it's good for them as well. You notice he doesn't just say, like, pray to get out of it. He says, pray for the city and for those with whom I, I've called you to, to, to live among, to flourish, to grow. And so God's placed them there just the same way that he's placed you and I in the city. Um, as the as the New Testament continues, we see God calling His people to pray continually, to pray fervently. The gospel really has changed us now to be a people where prayer is our norm. We're devoted to prayer. Being devoted to prayer is a really a normal pattern of life for God's people. And so we understand that, we know that, but yet we still live in this broken world where, where we're not restored yet. And so when we pray, we're not just seeking God's opinion. We're also, what we're doing is we're reminding our own hearts of specific needs where we're still in need of the gospel, of things that we need to be reminded of, of things that we need to be reminded of who God is and who we are in light of that. 
And so as we pray, really, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder that there is no confidence in our own self to do the things that God has called us to do. It's really a confidence in him to accomplish what he's called us to do. And so we're going to kind of break this up in, in the way that um, we did this last time in January. Actually, if you were here January 20th, we did this as well. Um, so we're going to break up the vision that we feel like God has called us to um, this year. You can put it on the screen if you want, um, wherever you are. There you go. Um, this is the vision we have for our church there, that we want to become fervent in leading, uh, living and speaking the truth in love in our cultural moment. And so we're going to just kind of break, pray through this in three pieces. And so Daniel's going to lead the first part um, of fervency. Hello, hello. As a church, we want to grow in fervency. That's very important. And that's mentioned in the Bible. Prayer, fervent prayers in the Psalms. It's in the New Testament. Paul actually com- commands fervency. In Romans 12, 11, he says to the church in Rome and to us now, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. What does fervency mean? Well, in Latin and in the Greek that Paul used to write fervent or used to write this letter, fervency comes from a word meaning boiling, to boil. So to be fervent is to be like boiling water or to be like boiling liquid. Fervency is an attitude in a way. We have to, Paul commands it here. He says, be fervent. Be fervent in spirit. So it is a choice that we make how we're going to serve the Lord. As a church, we must be fervent. We must be boiling. And I think part of that is excited, but a lot of that is motivation as well. It's a choice. But also, God spiritually, he comes in. And when he saved us, if you're in Christ, God is at your right hand. You can be strong and courageous and wait on the Lord. And I know there's so much emotional and physical and spiritual suffering that we as a church are in right now, like people as individuals, as groups, as families, as communities. And when you hear about like boiling or being fervent, it's like there's not a whole lot of energy to give. But part of being a church is that we encourage each other and that we pray for each other. Because God is real. He's spirit, but he's also real, and he's at our right hand. And that's a reason to be fervent and to reason to be excited in serving him. So what we're going to do for this first part of prayer is break off into groups of six. And maybe some people don't have that boilingness going on. It's okay to ask for it. God's given you himself. He's not abandoned you or left you alone. In Psalm 25, it says to remember the ways of old. Remember the stories of old. And right now, some of our stories feel like abandonment. Maybe they are on a like, relational level. But if you're in Christ, you're not abandoned. And that's just, that's just true. And so let's pray for fervency. And let's, as a church, encourage each other. So if you're, like, not looking forward to praying and 
in your group about fervency, that's okay. Pray for each other. Like, if you don't have much to give right now, then your brothers and sisters in Christ are going are gonna to pray for you, and we're going to pray for that as a church. And it's, it's, it's worth doing. So one part, we have to make a choice to, to be fervent. It's a command. But also God has not abandoned you just to become fervent. He's there by your side. So again, in groups of six or so, if you'll do that now, we're going to pray for fervency as a church, for fervency in, in serving the Lord. I can call you back for a moment. Um, you can just look up here for a minute. It was one of the things that we um, have said um, since the start of this church is that the gospel really gives us a new purpose in life, um, that God didn't just save you for yourself, but he also saved you so that you might declare and, and image him to the world around the, the gospel that you have received. And really this is that idea of fervency as that as we boil, as we're purified more in Christ, the truth of that gospel gets spilled out on other people. And so I want to I just pray through a messianic prophecy from Isaiah that really if we're going to image uh, the Savior well, one of the things that, um, that we can do is really pray for the things that he's most concerned with that those would be true of us and they'd be true of others around us. And so I want to just read from Isaiah 61 and remind our hearts of the power of the gospel, but also the purpose that it's given us. And so Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. I want to remind you that if you are a part of God's family, that you have been anointed. You are His chosen ones whom He's given His Spirit to. That's an amazing truth. That's amazing power that you have been given. And he's given it to this reason, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planted of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There's so many things in this that, that remind us of who we are, um, but I want to just, just keep going on because verse 4 talks about this. It says, then this is what's going to happen when we actually live out these ways. So then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up from the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. There's this idea of really restoration language that, that takes place. It's the idea that people would, be, um, would walk into the broken pieces and parts of a city and they would bring restoration both physically and spiritually as, as the truth of God just overflows from who they are. It says this in verse 5, Strangers will stand 
and pastors in your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. There's this idea of really where everyone is included, the idea of hospitality, where we're pursuing, we're inviting people who are not usually in those places. We get to invite them into places, into our homes, into places where strangers are not usually welcome, where the same way Jesus has really invited us as strangers, as foreigners, as enemies into his home. And we get to do that in many, many ways in our city. Verse 6 says, But you will be called the priests of the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. And you will eat the wealth of the nations, and their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of people. And all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Just one quick thing here. You notice that these people are different. They're a recognizable people. I want to remind us that people should recognize us differently. People should, should speak about us differently because the words that are coming out of our mouth and the things that we step into are countercultural. They're things that people don't usually do. And what that means is that we can't just hang around just with Christians We need to hang around with people that actually don't look like us and don't talk like us. That we would be people that that when they talk about us, they say, oh, you're such a nice person. We say, no, 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 that's not it. We humbly say, this is actually who we are in God, and he's the one that's doing this, and it's not about me. And that we proclaim the riches of Jesus. It's really what verse 10 goes on. It talks about what humility looks like, and it says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God. Here's the reason for joy. For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks herself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprout, and as the garden grows and things sown up into its spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So there's this idea that that as we are fervent and as we speak and as we step into the broken parts of the city, there should produce God will produce fruit. That when that when these things take place, He's the one that does the work, and there's, that we should see the fruit of others understanding and seeing who God is. Luke 10 says that that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. I want to just remind us that this city is really a city that needs many workers, needs many harvesters. It's the fertile crescent of not yet believers, if you want to say it that way. Um, and so some of those harvesters will be people that, that God has born fruit out of the ministry that, and the words that come out of your mouth through his spirit. Some are from other places that God will call to this city. And some that God will send to other places out from the city. And so I want to pray all of those things this morning that we would that we would be a people that truly embody fervency and that out of that we would speak his truth and we would declare his love in the midst of all the things that are going on in our culture so that 
he would be seen as someone who's great and who's someone who's worthy. And so let's take some time in your groups to continue to pray and to pray for those things in our lives and in the life of people in our city. So let's do that this morning. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up and move into the third part of our prayer time this morning. Um, As I was thinking about the final part of our statement in our cultural moment, we talked a lot about that at the beginning of this year, um, and we talked about this being our goal, and then we followed that up by saying we have the sermon series planned where we're going to go through and talk about a lot of these different issues in our cultural moment. And what I think we realize in hindsight is maybe what was communicated through that is that there's this problem that everyone's sort of aware of in their daily life. And we're going to have the sermon series, and we're going to figure out that problem, and we're going to solve it in this one sermon series. And then everything will be okay, and you guys can carry about your merry way. Um, And while that may have been communicated, uh, or implied rather, that is definitely not our hope for this Um, Our hope is that that was the starting point, that we brought up all these issues that maybe you're already thinking about, maybe you hadn't considered, and that now we have opportunity to have conversations with one another, to um, do what we're doing this morning, to spend time praying about them, and to ask for God to actually bring that renewal that we are all longing for, and that our world's longing for, if we're honest. Um, And as I thought about these pain points in our current cultural moment, um, I kind of had three areas come to mind that I feel like the Spirit gave me this morning. And the first is meaning and hope. You see, we all, everyone in every walk of life, longs for meaning and hope in their lives. Uh, But we're told that the only way to get meaning in your life in this, you know, uh, post-transcendent age where the world has been collapsed into a closed system that everything you can know can be known with your five senses. In that way, the only way you can find meaning is if you create it for yourself. So you have to go out and decide what a good life is. You have to find your own personal brand of righteousness, make a life, achieve it, and then you will have meaning, and then you will have hope. But we know intrinsically that that falls short. And we know to the depths of our being, that real meaning in life only comes from placing our hope in something that is totally beyond and outside ourselves and knowing that that hope is secured for us and knowing that in that way, meaning is secured for us because we begin to see the whole arc of the moral universe, as Martin Luther King said, bends towards justice. And justice is another issue, right? We all long for justice in our culture. We all We're seeing so many things playing out today where we're beginning finally to grapple with these deep-seated issues that have been dormant for a long time, issues that were just assumed for, um, yeah, for women and for minorities. Maybe I'm just going to be marginalized for all of time, and maybe no one's ever going to care about me. And finally, as a society, we're waking up to what does justice look like for these issues. Um, But the problem is... We care about justice in these areas and many others now, but we don't always know how to get to healing and restoration. 
We know how to bring people to justice, but what, is it, what does a restored life look like out of that? How do we bring justice, but then actually hope for a better life and new life for those people, um, both the perpetrators and the victims? And how do we grapple with the reality that maybe we're all victims and we're all perpetrators? And then lastly, how do we grapple with this identity of self-worth? How do we, how do we lay hold of that for ourselves? We're told that you have to be your best life now and you have to uh, progress in your career or figure out what your deepest desire is and pursue that in a way where you self-actualize and now you have identity um, based on that meaning that you created for yourself. We're told we have to achieve our own identity and self-worth and we're constantly day by day laboring under the weight of that demand that's placed on us. Um, not realizing that we're called to receive it in Jesus. So Stanley Hauerhouse is a uh, theologian at Duke Divinity School, and he puts it this way, summing up our cultural moment. He says that modern people say, you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story, which is an intended irony that somehow we begin in a place of neutrality and then we choose the story we're going to live into. But we know that that's not true. Um, we know that we're all beings in a world that are affected by the ongoing cultural norms and um, beliefs around us. And so how do we grapple this, with this? How do we begin to live into that story of the arc of the moral universe towards justice? Um, and so I wanted to read for us this morning out of Revelation 21 and 22. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, if we're honest, none of us actually want that choosing for ourselves, that choosing our own story. 
Um, our cry, the cry of our hearts is more like the woman at the well who says, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming here week after week. Give me this living water that you've just told me about that I know intrinsically that I need. And so we know as the people of God, right, that it is done. We know that Jesus on the cross took the whole weight of the uh, brokenness of the world, of every, every act that has ever been done where we gave away our glory to created things and created this violent environment. That Jesus didn't stand apart from that, that the Messiah God came into the world and said, I'm going to take that onslaught into my body so that you can be made whole, so that you can be made right, so that you can have new life, so that sin can be put to death and so that new life can be open for you. And so that's why we're here celebrating week after week, really day after day as we gather in our communities, that now the way forward is open to you, that you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of the Son of God, that Jesus has opened new life to you by putting sin to death in his very own flesh. Um, And so I want to take this time together and pray about, yeah, just ask the Holy Spirit to teach your heart where those pain points are in your daily interactions with friends, in your, maybe just in your daily rhythms of the things that you butt up against on a daily basis and are like, this is broken. This needs to be healed. Um, What are the ways where you need to see the wounds of Jesus actually coming in and healing your life? And as a result, producing that fervency that results in you being sent out um, with that healing word um, to the people around you and to the world around you. Um, So, yeah, so let's take this time now and pray. In a few minutes, um, I'll close this. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you have entered into our um, our story in an unexpected way, um, that you didn't remain separate from um, the broken turmoil of our world, um, where we continue to, um, to seek our own and create um, horrible violence and injustice. Um, not realizing that to be our own king means that someone else can't be. To be our own king means that I have to, I have to fight for my throne. Jesus, we, we thank you that you came and you've brought your throne into this world. You've established your kingdom not through um, laying hold of it um, with force, but through laying your life down for us, Jesus. And I pray that we would be people who embody um, that way of loving and showing um, your power and your grace to the world. Um, I pray that um, as we enter into a time of communion, you would help us to meditate on the forgiveness we've received, um, that none of us are, um, none of us are, free from this situation uh, as, as much as we would like to look out at the broken world and say somehow we've got, I've got here we've got here without me doing anything wrong we all know that Lord Jesus we're, we're walking and we're swimming in the same cultural water that um, yeah that leads everyone to be their own gods and we do that 
constantly giving our glory away to created things and producing more wrath as a result. So Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you would cause us to meditate on the forgiveness we've received as we enter communion. In your name I pray. Amen.